is Our American Stories, and we love to do segments about this thing called the American Dream. We know it's alive and kicking, because I think if you opened up the doors, 50 to 100 million people would probably come here. So we know it's alive. Some people in America might not think it is, but the rest of the world does. And we love to tell stories about American Dream, and some of our best, an hour with Mario Andretti, what a life story. And today... We're going to listen to the story of one such American dreamer who, in the, in the world of business, changed the world, revolutionized the world. A very unlikely person to do so from his past and from his very humble beginnings. Let's take a listen to this story. Here I go. He created the world on time. A modern wonder where everything from the latest gadgets to the most critical documents, what you want and what you really need, can be delivered overnight. His team works this fast. Okay, you just travel plans. I need to be in New York on Monday, LA, and Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA, and Thursday, New York on Friday. Got it? Got it. Got it. So you want to work here? What really makes you think you deserve a job here? Well, sir, I think I might get him good to figures and have a sharp mind. Excellent. Can you start on Monday? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Without hesitation. Congratulations. Welcome aboard. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And in conclusion, Jim, Bill, Bob, call Fred, load, dork, eight of them, ten. Business is business. And as we all know, in order to get something done, you got to do something. In order to do something, you got to get to work. So let's get to work. Thank you for taking me. Peter, did a bang-up job. I'm putting you in charge of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. I know it's perfect, Peter. That's why I picked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's perfect. Peter, may I call you Pete? Call me Pete. Pete. Is Mr. Schnittler here to see you? Home to wait 15 seconds. Can you wait 15 seconds? I'll wait 15 seconds. Congratulations on your deal in Denver, Dave. I'm putting you down to deal with Dallas. Don, is it a deal? Do we have a deal? It's a deal. I got to go. I got a call coming in. Hi, Doc. Just tell with Don. In this fast-moving, high-pressure, get it done yesterday world, aren't you glad there's one company that can keep up with it all? Got a deal. Good. I'm putting you down to deal with Dick. Dick, what's the deal with the deal? Are we dealing? We're dealing. Dave, it's a deal with Don, Dork, and Dick. Dork, it's a deal with Dave, Dick, and Dave. Don, it's a Dork with Dick, Dave, and Dick. Gotta go, Dave. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dick. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dad. Disconnecting. Federal Express. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. And all of this started with a college term paper. Its author was studying economics at Yale in 1965. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? Anyone? Anyone? Having a grand old time as a fraternity member. I don't think you can fully judge a fraternity without looking at the positive qualities of the people in it. Getting gentlemanly C's. But this paper, this one, stood out. In it, a young undergrad pondered what would have to change in society, in logistics, as our world became more and more automated, more computerized. After all, computers break down, and always keeping a spare for every part would be impractical. So we needed a customized transportation system, one that could move valuable things cross-country in the time it usually takes to move something cross-state. From that insight sprung one of the biggest companies in the world, today employing over 300,000 people. 300,000. A team that powers businesses of all sizes and the occasional giant panda adventure. 
we uh, needed to find a partner that could uh, transport the, the giant pandas from China to Canada. We also needed a partner that could ship the bamboo, which will be coming from the Memphis region. There's not many partners out there that can do all of that. We're very pleased that FedEx uh, stepped up. FedEx did more than just step up. They emblazoned a giant panda onto an airplane and called it the Panda Express. When something absolutely, positively has to get there, you call FedEx. But this idea may never have gotten off the ground. But for a family of entrepreneurs, but for a little old war called Vietnam, and but for a visionary young man, Fred Smith. Fred Smith was born in 1944 in Marks, Mississippi, a tiny town of about 2,000 people, due east of the mighty Mississippi River. Fred's grandfather, Captain James Buchanan Smith, was a master of steamboats along that river and the Ohio River, moving people and cargo up and downstream. Fred's father, James Frederick Smith, who also went by Fred, realized that the rivers of water connecting people then would soon give way to rivers of asphalt and concrete. And so he began selling trucks in nearby Memphis for the John T. Fisher Motor Company, one of the very first Chrysler franchises. In 1925, Fred's father took a truck that his boss had given him, replaced its cargo area with seating for 12, and began ferrying men and material around. What began as a one-man motor coach company turned into a 25-car company by the second year. And by the end of the third year, he had 60 coaches. Fred's father sold the company to Greyhound in 1931, more than a dozen years before Fred was born. But before young Fred could dream up ways to continue the family tradition of transportation, he had some other challenges. He had a rare childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip, which forced him to use crutches and watch sports from the sidelines in his early years. Fred outgrew the disease by the age of 10 and became an excellent football player. He even learned how to fly airplanes as a 15-year-old. Overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. And when we come back, more on the life of the founder of FedEx, Fred Smith. And you're going to learn about what a role his life in the Marine Corps played as it related to building this great company. This is our American Dreamer segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at Job Creators Network. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. It's our American Dreamer segment. And you're learning a bit about Fred Smith, his father, his background, where he grew up, the founder of FedEx. I mean, it's hard to imagine life without FedEx. But it started with that thesis at Yale. And let's pick up where we left off. Fred outgrew the childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip by the age of 10, overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. Having grown up without a father, my, my, my father passed away when I was four. So I was heavily influenced by my uncles and by my coaches. And uh, they were the, the influences uh, that, that really... I, I can I can hear their voices to this day, you know, talking to me, and and I, I still hear my uncles, all of them World War II veterans, and they're part of the greatest generation, and uh, and my my coaches there telling me, well, you know, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. Those same men inspired Fred to make a choice that would define his life and character. I was coming out of high school. There wasn't much question about the fact I was going to do my military service. It was just a matter of uh, which branch. And uh, uh, so uh, the Marine Corps appealed to me. The uniforms looked great. Fred left Memphis in 1962 for Yale. He would train with the Marines during the summer and go to class during the year. Life seemed to be going according to plan. It was during his junior year at Yale that Fred came up with the original idea for FedEx in that term paper. But before Fred could grow that into something that would change the world, events halfway around the world sent Fred to a very different sort of classroom. He soon left Yale, left with a degree, and left with a commission as an officer in the United States Marine Corps, shipping out for the first of his two tours in Vietnam. I joined uh, my unit in Chulai. I became a platoon leader and uh, served in uh, India Company and uh, Lima Company. I was then given command of uh, K Company 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. This was a very different war than World War II or Korea, with no clear battle lines. On a Monday morning in May 1968, Fred and his K Company engaged a much larger North Vietnamese battalion. Moving across fire-swept ground to reach higher elevation, Fred started calling down artillery and airstrikes to within 50 meters of where he himself stood. With fire support sowing confusion among the enemy, Fred and his Marines attacked and routed the much larger North Vietnamese force. What stands out most to Fred isn't the action. It's his fellow Marine. To this day, Fred beams with pride when he remembers the men he served with in K Company. Uh, there is nothing in my life that I'm more proud of than commanding K Company 3-5. They were the finest group of young men in those days that uh, you could ever hope to, to have, uh, courageous beyond belief. Fred Smith returned to the States and was honorably discharged as a captain, having earned a silver star a bronze star, and two purple hearts. 
but he had had enough of war. Later saying of that time, I got so sick of destruction and blowing things up that I came back determined to do something more constructive. It was then that he thought of his college term paper about a transportation network for the new digital age. It was dusty, but more relevant than ever. It was pretty clear then uh, with IBM, uh, you know, installing the, the big computers around that the world was going to change. And the paper was about how this was going to change a lot of things. And in particular, it was going to change the way things had to be distributed and moved to support those automated uh, devices. Just as his grandfather and father used the cutting-edge technology of their day, Fred envisioned a seamless network of airplanes and trucks. Other companies in the 1960s were also trying to speed up movement of high-value items, but they stuck to systems designed for passengers. Fred realized that unlike passengers during that era, packages didn't have to go directly from origin to destination. Airplanes could speed packages to and from a national clearinghouse. And trucks could make the final delivery. This way, two small towns that don't have frequent flights, or any at all, could still be connected with the speed of airplanes. Fred had seen how such a system might work. The Marine Corps' air-ground integration is a huge benefit and one of the big innovations that uh, Federal Express did, nobody had ever done before, was to have integrated air-ground operations. The pickup and delivery folks were uh, just like the pilots and the airplanes and, and everything was coordinated just as we had done in the Marine Corps and all of those lessons that I'd learned there uh, on, the, on the ground and in the air in Vietnam uh, played over and over in my mind as we were putting together the business plan uh, for FedEx. His father started his motor coach company with a truck. Fred started with a handful of airplanes. He had the idea that he would make deliveries for the Federal Reserve System by transporting, sorting, and rerouting checks, all with guaranteed delivery in 24 hours. Fred's calculations showed that he could save the American banking industry three million dollars a day. He even named his company Federal Express, hoping that it would resonate with the banks and conjure up images of nationwide commerce. Today you know this company as FedEx, serving customers like this. If a patient gets in a car accident and breaks their skull, we manufacture and produce the plates and screws that will actually screw into the bone and mend the fracture. So with these types of procedures, time is extremely valuable to the patient, to the surgeon, and everyone involved. So with our previous shipping carrier, it took us three days to ship the products from Freiburg, Germany, the, the manufacturing facility, here to the United States. That was in many times not fast enough. Exceptional service that FedEx provided for an urgent case uh, that was planned first thing on a Monday morning. The implant was shipped from Germany on Saturday morning by FedEx. It was imported into the United States and it was received by the striker representative at the airport on Sunday evening. Now this is a one-day transit time on the weekend 
from Europe to the United States. But back when the company was starting, not one bank believed it could deliver. So Fred, like any Marine, adapted and overcame by making a slight course correction. He would deliver any company's time-sensitive material anywhere in the country with his 24-hour guarantee. It's not like we're carrying sand and gravel. You know, we're carrying chemotherapy drugs and important manuscripts and electronic parts and, and pieces for airplanes that are grounded. So when we pick it up and say we're going to have it there early the next morning, I mean, we have to deliver. There's nothing else to it. So this is guaranteed. If we don't get it there, I mean, we don't get, get paid. FedEx officially began operations in April of 1973. On their first night, they delivered 186 packages to 25 cities with 14 airplanes and 389 team members. Most outsiders expected this innovation to fail. As Fred would later say of that time, people thought we were bananas. We were too ignorant to know that we weren't supposed to be able to do certain things. Fred, though, believed. They were bananas. 14 planes packed with 185 packages. You know what a, that cost for package delivery was? How did he bring that price down? How did he make this thing go? How did he make this turkey fly? Well, let me tell you, it never was a turkey. Only the turkeys thought this was a turkey. When we come back... Fred Smith's remarkable story, the creation of FedEx, and let me tell you, you'll hear him say it over and over again. The U.S. Marine Corps taught him more about life than anything else in life. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Fred Smith's life, the founder of FedEx. And he talked about the fact that he lost his father, but it was those uncles and coaches. And so, man, if you're listening, you can always be a surrogate father to a boy who needs help. As he said, I can still hear their voices in my head. And without those men, there is no Fred Smith, I promise you. And he'll tell you that, too. And by the way, John Woods did terrific work on this piece that we're about to hear the end of. Let's dive back into the life of Fred Smith and FedEx. In his time in Vietnam, he developed a willingness to take great risks to accomplish great things. 
Most businessmen couldn't imagine calling down bombs and napalm to within a few yards of themselves and their buddies. But sometimes, that's just what the mission requires. Fred's different experiences, different mindset, gave him a different take on his new business struggles. The, the currency of exchange in FedEx was just money. You know, it wasn't people's arms and legs or, or, or lives. And so my perspective on it was perhaps a bit more, um, I was willing to take, take a chance because losing wasn't the worst thing in the world that could happen to you. I had seen that very clearly. But Fred's confidence and the brilliance of the model, in hindsight, weren't enough to create immediate success. Three months after FedEx's launch, delivery drivers were frequently digging into their own pockets for gas money. And back in Memphis, things were just as grim. Federal Express had already lost one-third of its startup money. Roger Frock, a FedEx co-founder, recalled the desperate measures that had to be taken. By mid-July, our funds were so meager that on Friday we were down to about $5,000 in the checking account while we needed 24000 for the jet fuel payment. When I arrived back in Memphis on Monday morning, much to my surprise, the bank balance stood at nearly $32,000. I asked Fred where the funds had come from, and he responded, I knew we needed money for Monday, so I took a plane to Las Vegas and won $27,000. I said, you mean you took our last $5,000? How could you do that? He shrugged his shoulders and said, what difference does it make? Without the funds for the fuel companies, we couldn't have flown anyway. As it turns out, time overseas had taught Fred more than the difference between reckless and calculated risk. It also gave him a chance to practice card games. Two years in Vietnam, we played a lot of poker and a lot of blackjack, and in those days you only had one deck. So if you knew how to play, it was easier to win. But the winnings didn't last long, and by October, only three months later, Federal Express was on death's doorstep again. Nearly killed in the cradle by the Arab oil embargo, gas prices skyrocketed. Federal Express was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. And if it fell, it would take with it not only the $40 million of venture capital, but Fred's and his family's life savings as well. By April of 1975, two years after its opening night, Federal Express had lost nearly $29 million. Though it was losing money, the company's customer base was growing and the underlying idea was as sound as ever. But Fred will be the first to admit that there's no such thing as a new idea. If you brought Julius Caesar back to Earth he would understand the organization of, of FedEx because he basically invented it. Uh, we have our proconsul in Hong Kong, he had his in Palestine. Uh, we have our technical folks, our IT people, our aviation maintenance folks, he had his charioteers, his catapult operators, his engineers. And in July 1975, the company began showing a profit. And just nine years later, in 1984, Federal Express surpassed $1 billion in revenue, the first company to ever do so in its own right. Since then, 
FedEx has grown so much that it is woven into pop culture without the company even trying. Like in the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway. I was marooned on an island for five years with this package. And I swore that I would deliver it to you because I work for FedEx. Hey, but by the way, what's in the package? Nothing really. Just a satellite phone, GPS locator, fishing rod, water purifier, and some seeds. Just silly stuff. Thank you again. You keep up the good work. When asked what was the key to his success, Fred is well known to give the credit to his employees. After all, they are on the front lines of the business. And of course, he learned the importance of that once again in the Marines. It was the recognition that in a high-performance service organization, it's not the people at the top that are the most important folks in the equation, it's the customer service people. There are many units under the FedEx umbrella, and each has a branding color scheme. Purple and orange for Original Express, purple and green for ground, purple and crimson for freight, and so on, all united by purple. Every FedEx employee knows what Fred Smith calls the purple promise, the simple pledge that I will make every FedEx experience outstanding. Employees like Trung Do. The day I was rescued and sent to a refugee camp, that's the day I consider myself reborn. But the day I got a job with FedEx, that's the day I consider I have a new life, the best life I ever dream of. Trung served alongside Americans during the Vietnam War and was sent to a hard labor camp by vengeful communists after America left. He eventually escaped and made his way to the States, where he dedicated his life to working on the same planes at the same company as the man who had sponsored him to come to America. Trung enrolled in Aviation Mechanics School in Memphis, a stone's throw away from FedEx DC-10 airplanes coming and going. And the whole time I was in school, sitting in the back of the school, looking across runway 27 with FedEx over there, I was dreaming. I was praying to God. I want to be there someday. He soon passed the mechanic test, applied to work at FedEx, and waited by the phone. When FedEx called me and said that uh, FedEx is going to give me a job as a senior mechanic with uh, this kind of pay, blah, 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 blah. He said, oh, I, mean, I was blind. I mean, I, mean, I was deaf. My ears ringing. I couldn't hear a thing. All I hear is FedEx hiring me. Three decades later, Trung Do is still working for FedEx in Fort Myers, Florida keeping their 550 mile per hour delivery trucks in top condition. Still working for you. FedEx is still working for you for when your package absolutely, positively, has to be there overnight. And when it does, think of Fred Smith, who made it all possible. And thank your delivery driver, the way Fred would walk. And great job on that, John Woods. As always, these American Dreamer segments brought to us by the folks at Job Creators Network. I want to leave you with this simple thought. Fred Smith said there are two simple rules to being a good combat leader. 
to be the first to charge up the hill and be the last in line to eat. He has clearly kept those things in mind long after leaving the Marines. He said this, Although I'm chairman of the corporation, I can't get myself to cut into the line in the company cafeteria. Somewhere, a voice reminds me that a good officer lets his troops eat first. This is Our American Stories. American Dreamers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Catch all of ours. You'll love the Mario Andretti story. American stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us as always by Hillsdale College. And on this day in history, the movie Caddyshack was released in 1980. The movie was inspired by writer and co-star Brian Doyle Murray's memories working as a caddy at Indian Hill Club in Winnetka, Illinois. Brian's brothers Bill and John Murray and director Harold Ramis also had worked as caddies when they were teenagers, and many of the characters in the film were based on characters they'd encountered at the club. Let's listen to director and writer Harold Ramis describe how Caddyshack started out as a movie about the caddies, but quickly became about something else. Well, we set out to do a movie about, uh, about the caddies and uh, what it was like to be a caddy on a suburban golf course. There have been a lot of complaints already. Fooling around on the course, bad language, smoking grass, poor caddying. Want to be replaced by golf carts? Just keep it up. And uh, in the casting process, we hired such high-powered adult talent, uh, Rodney Dangerfield and Ted Knight and Chevy Chase and Bill Murray, that it, inevitably they, it, it, all our creative attention went to making those characters work. And the caddy story kind of didn't fade into the background so much as the, the story of the main caddy really got interlaced. Titans of comedy littered this cast, and Harold Ramis here explains how improvisation became a staple in the making of this cult classic. In comedy, there's this intangible that, uh, that you have to like, strive for and achieve every day, and there are no rules for it. We always trusted improvisation. We never felt like we were just ad-libbing or winging it. it it's, a, it's an actual technique and a method that allows you to create material. Uh, instantly, and it's not just you know grabbed out of thin air. You actually plan what you're going to do, and you have a, a. It's like having a script without finished dialogue. But put this in the hands of somebody like Bill Murray, and oh my goodness! In this completely improvised scene, Murray is swinging at perfectly manicured flowers as he imagines himself at golf's pinnacle tournament, the Masters. What an incredible Cinderella story. This unknown comes out of nowhere to lead the pack. At Augusta, he's on his final hole. He's about 455 yards away. He's going to hit about a two iron, I think. When we got all of that, the crowd is standing on his feet here at Augusta. The normally reserved Augusta crowd going wild. 
for this young Cinderella who's come out of nowhere. He's got about 350 yards left. He's going to hit about a five iron, I expect, don't you think? He's got a beautiful backswing. Dad, oh, he got all of that one. He's got to be pleased with that. The crowd is just on his feet here. He's a Cinderella boy. Uh, tears in his eyes, I guess, as he, as he lines up this last shot. He's got about 195 yards left, and he's going to... Looks like he's got about an eight iron. This crowd has gone deadly silent. Cinderella story, out of nowhere. A former greenskeeper now about to become the Masters champion. <clears throat> it looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole! It's in the hole! Hey, young he fellow, I was hoping to squeeze in nine holes before this rain starts. Uh, certainly, Your Eminency. Take my bag, huh? Certainly, Your Magnificence. Okay, come on. Chop, chop. Let's go. And, well, again, leave it in the hands of Bill Murray and you get something brilliant. Try this with someone else and you have mush, more than likely. By the way, we learned that uh, the gopher, uh, the, the gopher was actually created by the folks over uh, at, uh, at the studios that created Star Wars. So they were taking seriously what that gopher looked like. We also, of course, encounter the great Rodney Dangerfield and his comedic genius was starting to sweat on set. I'll never forget the first day Rodney came to work. All the comics were there to watch this guy work because he was the best, right? Rodney gets up, he sees all the comics, and he gets that performer's energy up, and he's delivering his lines. And then after a couple of takes, he starts to sweat and sweat, and he's upset. And, you know, I didn't, I'm trying to figure, what the hell's wrong? You know, so I go, Rodney, what's the matter? He goes, hey, nobody's laughing at me. I'm bombing, I'm bombing out there. And I said, Rodney, they can't laugh at you. He says, that's right, because I'm no good. I suck. And he says, no, no. He says, all those guys out there, all those comics. I said, Rodney, you don't understand. They can't laugh because if they laugh, they can't use the soundtrack. So it's contrary. He thought that he was bombing and all these other comics are there because he was the best. And he wasn't is the best and. Well, let's take a listen. You be the judge as to what type of job Rodney Dangerfield did. Hey, orange balls, I'll have a box of those. Give me a box of those naked lady tees and give me two of those. Give me six of those. Oh, this is the worst looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. (laughs) And you may not know that the famous Baby Ruth pool scene was based on a real-life incident at writer and actor Brian Doyle Murray's high school. Let's take a listen. Want some? Oh, give me some. Who asked you? Come on, I'm asking. I didn't Joey, ask you. Would you please? Get out Joey, would Hey, thanks a lot. I can't. 
<laughs> Don't touch it. I want the entire pool scrub sterilized and disinfected. Here it is. Ah. It's no big deal. Ah. Oh. The following is producer John Peters, director Harold Ramis, and Chevy Chase describing how the two biggest stars in the movie did not appear together in any scene. In the middle of the movie, we realized there was no scene between Billy and Chevy. And I went to Mark, who was uh, my partner, and I said, you know what, we don't, the two biggest stars in the movie aren't in the, aren't in the movie together. We knew we needed a scene with me and Billy because we'd been shooting a long time and we just didn't have one. And... <laughs> I took the actors off and I think we just sat and had lunch and started talking about, you know, Carl <laughs> growing grass that you could actually play on and smoke at the same time. So We had lunch. Uh, it was Doug, Kenny and Harold Ramis and Billy and me. And uh, this is to my best recollection. And we wrote that scene during lunch and shot it in the afternoon. Chevy would be practicing the night before for God knows what reason. And uh, we would see where Carl lives. It's like, all right, now we're going to see these two guys together. Fine. You know, it had nothing to do with the plot. It was just those two guys being funny. What I love is Billy. Uh, I love him to death. And it's interesting because Chevy and Bill were not great friends, and they'd had a run-in on Saturday Night Live. And uh, it was kind of interesting getting them together and watching them actually work well together. Take two, Mark. Oh, hi, Carl. Sorry to bother you. Oh, uh, hello, Ty. How are you? Pretty good. Can I play through? Do you mind? Sure, yeah. It's uh, getting kind of a late nine, is that it? Yeah, well, greens are pretty busy in the daytime. <laughs> what, uh, missing a ball here? Yeah. Is this your place? Yeah, what do you think? Oh, it's really awful, Carl. It's awful. Well, it's, uh, I've got some stuff on order. It hasn't come in yet. I'm waiting. Uh, awaiting credit approval still. They say assistant greenskeeper means nothing. Oh, yeah. don't, don't listen to that so, stuff. Uh, you see my ball anywhere? Tie list? That's it. Yeah, that's you there. Uh, maybe a... Can I get a grueling on that? I should probably get a free drop over the shoulder, no closer to the hole. Okay. Well, okay, you go ahead. And there you have it, folks, on this day in history. The movie Caddyshack was released in 1980. And this was Harold Ramis's first time directing, by the way. Had a budget of mere $6 million. It grossed 40, which back in those days got you the top 20, got you into the top 20. It would be the equivalent of about 115 million in today's money. And Bill Murray was on the set for only 6 days of the 11-week shoot and steals the movie. Let's go out listening to Bill Murray. In his kill the gopher speech, in his kill the gophers scene, this is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. More after these messages. I want you to kill every gopher on the course. Check me if I'm wrong, Sandy. But if I kill all the golfers, 
They're gonna lock me up and throw away the key. Golfers! You're great getting not golfers! The little brown furry rodents! We can do that. Why? We don't even have to have a reason. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and for the next half hour, we'll be discussing a big topic, the state of love on college campuses. And I might add, this probably applies to the millennial generation and maybe even to people in their early 30s. But the focus here is on one particular college campus and one particular professor. And we're fortunate to be joined by one of the nation's true experts and contrarians on the topic. And that's Kerry Cronin, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, Kerry, first off, you're a philosopher. And, and so <laughs> love, by the way, love is not something that uh, philosophers ignore. Um, but, no. but dating, probably. And <laughs> I'm not sure Plato dug deep into dating. Um, <laughs> but how did you become such an expert? that students, your, your, the people and the kids you teach, mentor, coach, dubbed you the love doctor. Is it through oh the philosophy classes or something more? Tell us a little about this title you've earned at Boston College. Well, it is, it is kind of funny to me. I, I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on this, but I love talking to students about their lives and about their choices and the ways uh, that they make their life decisions and their moral decisions. Um, I think it does, it has come, this whole thing, me being involved in this and talking to students about it, had emerged in the context of philosophy classes that I teach. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at texts that, in which we're thinking about friendship and, and relationships and the importance of that in a community and in a person's life and flourishing. And so we sort of get to these kinds of questions all the time. But, but it was conversations with students outside of class, actually, that led me to talk really specifically about dating and hookup culture and to find out what the heck is going on out there. And students over the years, probably, I've been probably talking to students about this for eight to ten years now very openly, and they have just been wonderful uh, in telling me, being very upfront about what, what dating and hookup culture is like in college, what, how they feel about it, what their anxieties, their fears, and their desires are. So it's been wonderful. I, everything I know, I've learned from them. And how did you stumble upon the specific star- talks you had about dating and relationships? How did you stumble upon this absence in their lives? Well, you know, it was interesting. I, I had a conversation with a group of students about, gosh, it had to be 10 years ago now. I had I had worked with some students on a student program, and we, were going, we went out for ice cream after the program 
just because it had gone well, and I was the facilitator of a discussion. It was a public discussion on on faith, actually, and and so we went out for ice cream afterwards, and they were all seniors. There were eight seniors, and we we were just talking about life and life after graduation and that sort of thing. And I, after talking about jobs and grad schools and different options, I I said, you know, what about what about the people you're dating? And and I got a real blank stare from them all, and I thought, what's going on? And they said, oh, we don't do that dating thing anymore. Where that's we just don't do that. That's not really done here. And I, I pressed them on it, and after that, I just started asking questions regularly about it. And students told me a lot uh, about hookup culture. I learned things that I, I thought I knew about. I learned things that I never knew about. I, I've, and I've thought about these things with students for years since. Well, and it's uh, interestingly enough, you, you learned, I, I guess, that the hookup culture, just as years ago there were dating rules, Carrie? Yes. That the hookup culture itself had rules. You know, what I heard from students a lot at the beginning was, well, you know, we don't, we don't really date. We would like to keep things much more casual. And that there was this idea that, that the hookup culture was the casual thing and, and that that was the easy thing. But when I, when I listened to them, I realized that, that it, it actually looks like it's super casual and that there are no rules, but there are lots of rules. And I say to students all the time, and they, and they all agree, you have to know the rules to participate in hookup culture. Everybody knows them, but nobody speaks about the rules. And, um, and if you break the rules, you're out. You know, nobody wants to have anything to do with you. So, right. so you, they, they figure the rules out pretty quick. And, and, and the rules include, you know, so typically when I talk to students, I'll, I'll run through some like the top 10 rules, you know, rules like don't talk about it while it's happening. Don't ask, what does this mean? You know, don't, you got to learn how to use texting, you know, don't stay over, know where your, you know, know where your earrings are so you can grab them when you're leaving, know where your shoes are, you know, don't be awkward. You know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that, that are part and parcel of the hookup culture that, that students know and that they figure out the rules. But as I say to them, isn't it strange that we think there are no rules and that dating is so formal and everybody's so terrified of asking somebody out for a cup of coffee, but to get involved in hookup culture looks like it's ordinary and casual and that there aren't rules, but, but we know that. We know there are. are. You know, I want, to play yeah. a, I want to play a clip from you. I'm going to hold on a response, and then we'll get the response on the other side of a break, Carrie. But it's okay, a sure. it's a clip Thanks. of you and a talk you gave to the Love and Fidelity Network, and then again we'll okay. ask we'll ask we'll talk to you about it right after the break. I know that students at at my university are incredibly ambitious, smart, wonderful, socially just, interested in other people until about Thursday afternoon, right? And then the nighttime culture sort of gets going, and suddenly it's it's a different it's a whole different scene. It's a whole different scene. And we're going to get to the other side of that scene in a bit. Uh, we're joined by Kerry Cronin. She's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she's known at the school as the love doctor. And it's because of some of the things she's been doing with the kids as it relates to their lives and to this thing that for millennium men and women did called dating. But the millennials, it turns out, are not doing much of. 
and I think this will interest every parent listening. It'll certainly listen, uh, excite the millennials listening, because this is their lives we're talking about, and not in judgment. None of that here. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and more after this moment with the Love Doctor. I say, hey, I'll be gone today, but I'll be back come around the way. It seems like everywhere I go, the more I see, the less I know. I say, hey, I'll be gone today, but I'll be This is Lee Habib, and the subject right now is dating, or the lack thereof. Something very new, actually, to millennials. They're, they're not doing it like we used to. Why? What's going on? Nobody knows about this better. No one's dug deeper into the subject. You don't know her, but now you do. And we're going to get to know her better over the coming months, and I hope years, because I don't think you can ever stop talking about a subject like this. We're talking to Kerry Cronin, who's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, but is known as the love doctor by the students there who adore her for daring them to do something that people have been doing for centuries. And it's a little thing called dating. Where we last picked up, Kerry was describing this Thursday night culture. The kids are a certain kind of wonderful child all week long. And then, well, the werewolves of London come out, so to speak, and something starts to happen. Well, let's, uh, let's continue, uh, Kerry. Go from there. So that's funny. That's a great description of it. I, I often say to students, you know, the students I, I, I work with and live with here at, at Boston College are lovely. They are just hardworking, lovely young people, and they, they're eager to please, and they're eager to work hard and compete, and they, they hold a door for you at 50 paces. It's exhausting how nice they are. <laughs> but then the nighttime culture is, is really aggressive. It's, it's very aggressive in terms of competitive drinking and the hookup culture is very aggressive and they feel it they're they're i I find and we we all know that college students in the united states now are are very much uh, affected by anxiety and stress and i think this has a lot to do with it um they're they're busy in their daytime lives but at night uh it's it's rough out there and they're trying to to find their way and find their work out important questions about who they are and what they want in their lives but there's not there isn't a culture that's helping them at all. No, and you know, it, it's always been tough to be 18. Uh, so let's not forget that. <laughs> and it's hard for us at 30, 40, I'm, I'm in my 50s to remember. Sure. But my goodness, think about it just for a minute. And you'll wish you weren't 18 again after you think that's about true. it, actually. But for those of us who aren't aware, Gary, can you paint a picture of what this, quote, nighttime hookup culture and scene looks like and why exactly it's so appealing in the end, or maybe not appealing, but what draws these students into it? Sure. I think, you know, what, what happened on, in the, on the college campus scene, I think, and I, I'm mostly talking about uh, four-year residential colleges because I, I think at, at, when I go to schools and 
at which the populations are uh, are not residential students, you don't you don't see this as much. People are working part time jobs or working to get through school, and they don't have time for this. But at four year residential schools, students will often you know they they come off of really stressful days, and the weekend uh, on the weekends they they pre game parties, which means you know they get drunk before they even go to parties, mostly because. For instance, our campus is, is mostly a dry campus, and so they are ostensibly not drinking on campus, right. but they, they have to find their ways to drink. So they go to parties, and they've got to get drunk fast. You know, the keg party script is you've got to get drunk fast before the RAs or the police come and break it up. So, so it's much more of a shots culture, if you will. You know, it used to be years ago, beer was the, the drink of choice for, you know, Animal House kind of that scenario, but now they're drinking hard liquor because that's easier to, to get in to, to a dorm. They're, it's, so they're drinking hard liquor fast, and women are drinking and are binge drinking at the same rates that men are, and so, so everybody's trashed, and, and, and everybody's sort of hyper-competitive because they've, these young people, these millennials, have been competing their whole lives. You bet. You know, this is this is definitely the organization kid that David Brooks described years ago. Yep. These students are they're highly programmed, they're highly competitive, highly achieving, and they want to achieve in their social lives too. And this script, the hookup script, yeah. has really become such a dominant script and it's it's associated with the keg party script. But it would be wrong to would it, would it be wrong for me to assume also that uh, these high achievers are also in a sense conformists. I mean they so want to get approval from their superiors from their teachers, then in the end they'll conform to whatever the norm is in this respect? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, because they've been taught, you know, they've been taught throughout their academic careers and their sports careers. You know, many of the students we have here were varsity athletes in high school. They're, you know, they know how to, how to, to find out what the formula of success is and get themselves there. Yep. They know how to do it. And, and hookup culture gives them, it gives them, check marks. You know, I've, I've hooked up with this many people. I've hooked up with this person who I think is good looking, this person who other people want. You know, it's, it gives them markers that they can achieve. And, and as I say to students, this is, this is a movement to an exterior set of, of check boxes. You know, this is, but, but it has lots of ramifications you on bet. your interior life. You've got lots of consequences. And we're talking, by the way, yeah. folks, with Kerry Cronin, and she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But on the side, she teaches a dating course there that's standing room only. The kids come from everywhere because she actually challenges them to leave this hookup culture and try and do something actually that turns out to be really daring, and that is to ask someone out on a date. Before we get into that, though, Carrie, what are the five types of hookups? And folks, parents, take notes. Talk to your kids about this. But what are they? Right. So over the years, I, uh, when I give talks to students, um, I find that what you have to do when you're talking to students about this so that you're not coming off in, in a really judgmental way and putting them in a, in a posture of, uh, in a defensive posture is you've got to use humor and you've got you to ask them to tell you what's going on. And what I've heard from students is uh, that there's lots of different reasons and types of hookups. And, and I often say to students, so there's the, there's the pure hookup, which is a one-time deal. You know, you just meet a person at a party or you 
you know, and you hook up with them and that's that and you never hear from them again. Or maybe you see them on campus and you do the sort of campus look away, which is uh, what our students call it. You just kind of look in the other direction or pretend yep. you're looking on your phone. There's the regular hookup, which is, you know, you hooked up with somebody and then maybe you see them at, at a party the next week or the week after that and you kind of think, well, that worked out well and you get a look and you understand that that's going to happen again and maybe a couple of times. Then there's friends with benefits, which I always say to students, that's crazy. I don't, that's not what I do with my friends. And Aristotle <laughs> doesn't describe friendship that way. So no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> then there's, then there's, you know, there's, there's different uh, sort of types of hookup, hookups, like revenge hookups or, you know, or, or uh, after you break up, uh, reuniting with the old flame hookups. There's, you know, and actually there's many more than five and, the reason that I know there are many more than five is because every time I go to a school, students add to the list, which is scary. <laughs> but when you can get them to laugh about it, that's also when you can get them to start reflecting on it. When you, when you will laugh with them and say, isn't this a little strange and ridiculous and actually not what you really long for and what you really desire? Oh, you life. bet. You know, I'm, I, I, a, I'm a Christian, but one of the books that influenced my life the most, actually, and weirdly, because I tell my friends this, and they go, what? But it was Martin Buber's I, I and Thou. And it, it, it's always that space between the, the I and Thou that we can, we can draw people in. And, and too often, people of faith don't allow that space to not only other people of faith, but people not of faith. Uh, yeah, that's we, right. we have about a, a minute here. We're going to hold you over and do another segment, Carrie, because we just can't stop talking about this. <laughs> But what do you think okay. is the cause of this present culture full of hookups but absent of love? Yeah, that's 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 a that's the deep question. That's the sixty-four thousand dollars question. I, I think I think people are looking for an easy way to to try to to put their toe into you know the water and and try to find love without any risk. So when I talk to students about dating, actually, it's it ends up being mostly about courage not love yeah but you know in the end what did aristotle say about courage it's the it's the it's the first requirement for all of the other virtues or something like that and and how can you have love without courage we're going to hold here and we're going to continue this fascinating conversation about our kids about ourselves in the end uh and about life because it any of us who've ever said i love you to anybody and meant it no they're the three hardest words to say and if you don't hear them back, my goodness, this is the hardest thing in the world. And that's why you don't say it, because you're not sure you'll hear it back. We're talking to Carrie Cronin, and she is the doctor of love at Boston College. And she also happens to teach philosophy at Boston College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and more after this.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to Kerry Cronin. And she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she has an even more serious job there in some respects, and that's counseling and coaching her young students how to do a thing called date. And in the end, how to think about love, because we all think about it, and it's a scary thing. And Kerry, thanks so much for joining us for the hour here. You bet. I wanted to read to you something from that Love and Fidelity Network interview that one girl had shared, because I think it's fascinating, and then we can pick up on this love theme. Here's what she said. She said, I have loved my time at Boston College. I have grown intellectually. I've made incredible friends. I've had amazing relationships in Boston. I have a job lined up. I'm a better sister, a better daughter, a better roommate, a better friend now. And then she said, quote, but the only area in my life in which I have not grown is the area Uh, of understanding of what I want out of love, what I want out of romance, what I understand about my own desire, my own passions. In this area, not only have I not developed, I think I have regressed. I think I am more scared, more unsure of myself, and I know myself on these things less than I did when I graduated from high school. My goodness, what a self-aware human being. What a beautiful human being to even write this, Carrie. Yeah, I remember that young woman very well. Um, she was actually part of a focus group that we ran here when we were trying to figure out uh, uh, some, some of the administrators here at Boston College tried to ran focus groups with students to try to figure out what was going on in terms of hookup culture and dating and relationships and uh, sexuality. And, and so we had a number of really wonderful students who came and shared, shared really deep and profound reflections like that with us. It was stunning to me. And when I, when I heard that young woman speak, I, honestly, I was heartbroken. Because, you know, we pride ourselves, especially here, this is a Jesuit university, we pride ourselves on educating the whole person. And, and to me, that's unacceptable. We're not doing our job if we're not helping students to navigate the most important parts of their lives. Yep. Uh, and that, that's just heartbreaking to me. You know, man is not an economic animal alone. And, you know, the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn leaves a Soviet gulag, comes to the United States, and everybody thinks he's going to hammer communism. But he does quite the opposite. He gives a lecture to everybody about the downsides of capitalism. He's no friend of communism, but he talks about the material and how the material can actually squelch out the spiritual and kill love. And no one was expecting that from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and why it's one of the great talks in American history. By the way, you can go to Great American Rhetoric and you can look up Solzhenitsyn and look under A, not S. That's how they put everything there. We want to play a clip for you, Kerry, uh, again from that a talk at the Love and Fidelity Network and pick up on this duty and responsibility of a Jesuit school, for goodness sake, teaching the whole person. I am terrified to start recognizing that universities and colleges today are places of great opportunity, great ideas, great ambition and achievement, but not great love. That between the ages of 18 and 22, or 23 if you really just need to take an extra year, (laughs) or 21 if you're like really excelling, like while you're here in college, this is a great time to fall in love, but you probably won't. And it's not because you don't want to. But it is because there is a culture that has sprung up, that has emerged, that's not going to support 
you finding a great love alongside finding great ideas, great opportunities, great conversations, great friendships, great ambitions, great, great accomplishments. To find a great love is also something we would, we would really like to help you with. You kind of have to do it on, yourself, by, on your own, but we're certainly not helping to scaffold that, a culture that would help you do that. I'm not sure what else you can add, but tell me what really <laughs> what dug you in there, and why do you, why did universities not talk about this, and what happened? No, oh, that's a great question too. I mean, I, I you know I think in the United States the the universities, colleges and universities have really moved away from the in loco parentis model, and so by and large, even though you know. Parents are entrusting for for a lot of money. Parents are entrusting their their young sons and daughters to our care. the The general rule of thumb is stay out of their business. and And there's something important in that insight. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, I think we we went to to a far extreme on that. And and I find that that college students really want a lot of help and. They're not afraid of older adults uh, helping them with things. Uh, unlike p- previous generations who didn't trust anybody over the age of 30, <laughs> right. I find that millennials crave conversations about their lives. They, they crave coaching, if you will. Um, I find that when I talk to uh, young male students, for instance, uh, as well as young female students, actually, when I think about it, they are really receptive to life coaching sort of attitudes. And they, they, the more that I talk to them about this, the more they want to meet with me and talk to, to me about this. And so they are really craving some help, but I think that we're assuming that they don't want any help and that they don't want to be told how to live. Well, as a matter of fact, they don't want us to be overly directive or overly moralizing or judgmental, but they want conversation. And it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to walk that fine line uh, in having conversations that, that are helpful but not intrusive, you know. But I think, um, I think faculty and administrators and staff members who, who are happy in their own lives and who are really, um, who have, who have their own children, perhaps, uh, who are going through these kinds of things, they can be really helpful. But most people are sort of nervous about talking about these kinds of things. You know, I, I'd tell you a story. I was on a plane uh, about, probably about a, well over a year ago. attractive young lady was sitting next to me, and I was writing a column and battling out a column about love. Um, and I was getting close to my little girl's birthday, and I had never known anything like that kind of love for a child. I'd known a love for, for a woman, finally, in my, and I had waited way too long to know that. Because I actually was a millennial before there were millennials in this respect. I was afraid of saying I love you to somebody. And I confess this in this column. I had never properly said it to a woman until I was 41 years old. Because I was afraid of the rejection. Who knows why? I, I don't know. But I didn't. And I write about this. And then I get to the part of the column where I'm typing. And I'm going to read you some of the words because I could feel her reading this. And as she was reading it, she, I could feel her crying as I was reading it. And I wrote, as I quoted a line from Julian Barnes, and Barnes, Barnes had said, I was 32 when we met and 62 when she died, speaking of his wife. She was the heart of my life and the life of my heart. You put two things together, Julian Barnes wrote, that have not been put together before, and the world has changed. And then I wrote, that's the power of love. 
The world is changed by it. Without love, the world is barren. The day my wife told me she was pregnant, my world changed again. In what is the greatest love song ever written about childbirth, the narrator in Bruce Springsteen's Living Proof says this, In his mother's arms, it was all the beauty I could take, like the missing words to some prayer that I could never make. It was and is all the beauty I can take, watching our daughter grow and laugh and play, the heart of my life, the life of my heart, the answer to a prayer I never even knew to pray. I turned around and she was weeping. And I started a conversation as deep as I'd ever had with another human being who was about to get married and was crying, she told me, because I asked her why. Her husband just told her she did not want to have kids. Her husband-to-be. On the back end, we're going to talk about what happened there, Kerry, and then talk to you about some of those same kinds of conversations I am sure you have had with these young people. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we're talking for the hour about dating, about love, with the love doctor and a professor of philosophy at Boston College, Kerry Cronin. you're listening to alan jackson and it was a day when it was that simple and it was never simple so let's not go back and be too nostalgic but back in the day my parents so many folks i know the guy met a girl he asked her out and if it was right they moved along and they started a family no existential dread no i'm not ready yet no let's hook up just didn't exist or if it did no one it wasn't codified into the culture and we're talking for the hour with the doctor of love, who also happens to be the professor of philosophy at Boston College. And that's a, that's a nickname she's been given, by the way, on campus because of this class we're about to describe and discuss. Kerry Cronin joins us. Kerry, so you've, you've diagnosed the problem, you've gotten to know the kids, and you start a dating class. Talk about that. <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't actually a dating class. I, I might, maybe I would get fired for that, but it was a, <laughs> it was a senior capstone seminar. You know, many colleges and universities have these uh, capstone seminars. It was a one-credit only, pass-fail seminar, once-a-week meeting with juniors and seniors to sort of discuss, you know, so what, what, 
what things have you discovered about yourself and life in your education? What questions do you still have? And we talked about sort of large things like the future and the role of money in your life and that sort of thing. And, and I, uh, I used to save two weeks to discuss relationships, friendships and romantic relationships. And, and after I had discovered that uh, this, the hookup culture was such a dominant script, I decided in one of these seminars that I would ask my students to go on a, tr- what, a traditional date. And I, uh, they all seemed pretty excited about that. The first group was about 15 students in a class. And so I said, oh, you know, could you, by the end of the semester, could, I want you to ask somebody out and go on a date. And so week after week, they came back and they kept talking about it. Oh, I don't know who to ask. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I kept wondering why this was so complicated. Well, we get to the end of the semester and only one of the 15 students had, had been able to do it which I thought was really shocking because, again, these are really bright, wonderful, beautiful students. And so the next semester, during the drop-ad period, I said to them, you're going to have an assignment to go on a, to ask somebody on a date, go on a date, and, and re- write a reflection about the date, and you have to do this assignment. I won't pass you if you don't. It was a requirement. <laughs> it was a requirement. <laughs> I had to good. make it a requirement because yep. I realized they would just keep talking about it and talking about it and never doing it. So... So I said, you could drop the class right now. I think three, three students dropped out right away, but three more came in. And so that second semester, everybody did it, but it was sort of a mess. They didn't know what they were doing. It, you know, we had lots of, lots of students would come in and tell funny stories about it. So by the third semester, I, I sort of wisened up. I, now, when I give this assignment, I give this assignment now in my uh, freshman, to my freshmen who take a great books class with me. Um, and I, I give them a, a sheet of paper that has instructions. I had to come up with a set of instructions because what I realized was that hookup culture had not only become the dominant social script, dating as a script had been completely lost. They didn't know how to do it. Yep. And so I, I needed to give them a set of instructions so they have to follow a set of my rules um, and on the back side of the, the sheet is a list of 50 inexpensive dates around Boston, you know, so that it doesn't have to be a burden. Yeah. And, uh, and so from there, we've gone in every semester. Uh, I give it now to freshmen because, you know, freshmen are, uh, they, my students this year will have this assignment in February. I, I make it an optional assignment. Uh, it's a, they'll get bonus points for it on an exam. And so they all jump on that. Uh, but Honestly, I've had students, I had students who, who started coming to that class where it was required, and students would say to me openly, in front of other students, I am taking this class so that you will make me go on a date. I want to do this. Wow, that's fascinating. And I would say, or you could just go on a date. You don't need to take a whole class <laughs> just to do that. But it's so outside of the norm yep. that they need an excuse. Well, it's and interesting, I'm, Carrie. What's interesting is that they, it seems to me they're more at ease hooking up than just sure asking somebody out. And that's remarkable. I wanted to rip through some of these rules of yours, if you don't mind. Sure. And one yeah. of them, by the way, uh, like on the top of it all, is that obviously it's alcohol-free because we yeah. all know that what the students use alcohol for does not at all lend itself to getting to know someone. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It, it's yep. to not know them. That's why right. we do it and allow us to do things we wouldn't do but for the alcohol. 
So here were the nine rules. You must ask someone who you are legitimately interested in, and you must ask them in person. Texts can be sent to arrange a time and place, but the invitation must be extended face-to-face, too. The date should last between 60 and 90 minutes, no more, no less. It should be a daytime date. You must pay for a date is four, but you should spend no more than $10. Five, there is no alcohol. Six, no physical interaction. Seven, you are allowed to say that it is not for an assignment, that it is for an assignment. Eight, you can only divulge your plan with three people. Nine, when you ask the person, plan for your date no more than three days in advance. And ten, optional, submit a two-page reflection paper to Professor Cronin while this assignment is ungraded and it would be impossible to ensure its completion. It is a worthwhile endeavor. So go forth, students of Boston College, and find love. And if not love then at least a story. That is so delightful, and I'm just shocked that we are, we're, we've come to this, but thank you for doing it. What's the reaction now? You've gone from 15 students. How many students are interested in this now at Boston College? Oh, well, you know, that's the most fun. The, the most fun thing that I realized that, happened, um, that, that happens uh, is this. I actually am, in any given semester, I'm giving the dating assignment to maybe 25 students. But although I, I give a lecture on campus each year, uh, in, so, and usually there's three, three to 400 students at that lecture, and I say, if you're here, you have the dating assignment now. But the interesting thing is that, that I found that happened was not that just 15 or 25 or even 300 students went on dates. What happened was, as soon as the dating assignment was on a piece of paper, students would bring it back to their dorm rooms, their apartments. And, and here, most of the upper-class students live in apartment-style um, suites. And so they have six or eight roommates. And so what was happening was they were bringing it back to their apartments, and it was people were discussing it. It became such a buzz. Wow. and. And it really is. Everybody knows here, if students start to ask you out, you'll, they'll often hear someone respond, oh, is this a Cronin date? So, <laughs> and I always say to students, that's fine. That is Blame fun. it on me. Exactly. You know, because that'll make you feel a little less nervous. And it can be funny and something to talk about for the first five minutes of the date and laugh about. That's great. Make it a fun thing. That it, is. It, it's that, supposed to be fun. It is supposed to be fun, and it, it's delight. Right. It's a delight, and it's supposed to be scary, too. And think exactly. about how many scary things are fun. You know, we go up in, in gigantic slides and pummel on down and pay money for that. But that, that's dating. <laughs> Let's face it. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, you, you know, you, you have all these kids who've done these dates. Um, mm. Can you talk about some student reflections from their dates. Give us a couple of, you know, what have you oh, learned sure. from your students? What have you taught them and what have you learned from them? Oh, absolutely. I have learned so much from them. It's, it's, it's outrageous how much I have learned from them. I have, I've got uh, a locked file drawer full of these reflections. And, and one of the things that I want to point out that I do in the class too is they're not only giving me uh, their reflections after they've gone on a date, but we, we find class time for them to talk about it with each other and tell the story of their dating. And what they mostly want to talk about is the story of the ask, that, that asking someone out in person is, is the big hurdle, and it's the thing that they love to, to retell. And what I have I've found in Reflections is some of my favorites are 
pieces of, refl- of student reflections have to do with how anxious they feel during the ask. I had a student uh, years ago who wrote um, this beautiful reflection on, on asking a guy out, and she said, she described it thus, she said, my heart was pounding and my palms were sweating as I, apo- as I approached my target. And when, when I read it, I thought, uh-oh, wait a minute, what's going on? But these are the kinds of ways that they feel, and they, they write beautifully. But you know, you, do you know what's really going on there? I think what's going on there is it's the red badge of courage. People love yeah. to write about that which they overcome. This that's makes them exactly right. this makes them proud. And my goodness, that's better than hey, here's how I hooked up. And now it's one of those dark memoirs about how someone took too many pills and offed herself. Uh, that's Carrie, exactly right. I, I can't that's tell you. Right. You know, the, the, your point about stories is absolutely correct. One of the one of the things I say to students about hooking up is that that that's part of the game of hooking up, right? Is to you know on Sunday morning or Monday morning telling the story of who you hooked up with on the weekend and getting the points for it and the social status for yep, it. Yep. But telling the story of going on a date, students will say, "Wow, people came up to me and congratulated me for having asked somebody out, and people are impressed that I did that." They're experiencing their own bravery, their own courage, and as I often point out to them. You're for the first time asking for what it is you truly long for, what you, you really want, what you, you are nervous about, and what you think maybe this could really lead to something. And, and what we were almost encoded by God to, to ask for, too. Carrie right. Cronin, thank you so much for what you do. In fact, one couple even got married because of the yeah. work that this professor did. The Doctor of Love, Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lee. It was really a joy. You bet.